All right. Good morning, everybody. Oh, we're going to have fun, fun, fun today. Um, before we do that, let me tell you a couple things. Um, there was a reference to, to uh, missions in Ghana. I think we still have a couple of people who need to raise support for the, the trip to Ghana that is May 22nd. If the Lord's put it on your heart to give, now would be a really great time to help them. So we have that. And here's the other thing. Uh, we don't always let you know about all the behind-the-scenes things that happen, but I'm going to let you know about one that just happened just before the offertory, um, just a technical glitch happened, and uh, Shiloh and Scott and Ellie all lost the ability to hear, not, not physically, their equipment went out, so their equipment went dead. So that song was performed by faith. Um, what you were able to hear, they were not able to hear as they did it, and I just thought, man, it just made it that much sweeter, and what a great job. So uh, give your secret up. Okay, um, we have been doing a series in Acts for a long time. I look back and I, I keep a record of every sermon I've ever preached. And I, I went back, to, I was like, man, when did this series start? And so I opened up the book and I, it's a ledger, I flipped back through it. We started this series last July. Last July. Um, and so, so we've been doing this and, and if you missed the beginning or any of the introductory material, the goal of this whole series was not for us to try and copy the first church. Um, that is actually impossible unless you guys have a hookup with some camels and talents and shekels and a whole different wardrobe. We cannot quite replicate the first church, but, but the, the objective here was that we would go back and we would learn from the, the first church, that we would seek to understand what it meant for them to live for Jesus. You know, what was it like to love, really love Jesus, to serve God, to serve man? What did that mean in the first century church, the original, when they started with all this energy in light of this resurrection, with this new movement? And so we've been doing that. And so here we are now at Acts chapter 19 and a half. And, and logic would say that, you know, when you get this far into Acts, you've probably pretty much seen and heard it all. I mean, anything Acts has got to say after this point, you know, it's just like reruns, Right. Well, not exactly. Um, today, we're going to encounter something brand new in Acts chapter 19, something we haven't seen yet. So buckle up, because this one is a wild one. Acts 19, uh, beginning with verses 23 through 27. There arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Well, he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we have just experienced your beauty. We've experienced your presence and worship. God, you have touched us today in such a beautiful way. 
And Lord, I thank you that the word of God, when we come to the sermon, the proclamation of the word, it in itself is worship as well. And so Lord, help us not to lose that sweetness that we gained a few minutes ago. I pray that that hearts that were softened in worship will receive now an incredible message, Lord, just straight from your heart to ours. God, I pray that when we go out of here today, something will be different. Some light would have gone on some piece of understanding would have clicked, Lord, some chain would have fallen off. Father, prove yourself in our lives through the proclamation of your word, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, Luke, I don't know if you, if you caught it in the very beginning in verse 23, Luke gives us a news flash here, okay? Um, he news flashes us about suddenly there being a great disturbance. Now, not a great disturbance in the force, but a great disturbance in Ephesus. Suddenly, out of nowhere, life in Ephesus seems normal, and there's this great big trouble that just brews up, and it kind of erupts like a geyser. And this trouble that erupts has to do with a movement called the way. Now, if you've spent any time in Acts, you know that the way is simply a euphemism for Christianity. Um, so so uh, he's referring to the church here. And here's the thing, trouble surrounding the church, trouble about the church also means trouble for the church's leader. That's the Apostle Paul. And we need to also understand as we go into this that neither Paul nor the church are the source of the trouble, okay? So, whole lots of trouble. It's all around and about the church, but the church or Paul, neither one of them are the troublemaker. That distinction goes to somebody else, okay? Uh, That privilege, that title goes to a man named Demetrius, and here in Acts 19, he is going to come at Paul like a freight train. We might ask, why? What's Paul done? Why, why is Demetrius suddenly going to attack Paul? Well, here's the reason. It's because Demetrius is a Shriner, all right? Now, when we think of Shriner, we think of those guys, in, you know, in the Fez that if you've ever been to a parade, they drive the little go-karts in and out, you know, they, 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 they found these children's hospital. That's not the kind of Shriner we're talking about here. Demetrius is a silversmith, and he is in the shrine-making business, all right? Now, here's what a shrine was. A shrine back then was something that was crafted by a master jeweler, all right? They called them silversmiths. And for the most part, they tended to be these little charms that could be worn on your necklace or on a bracelet. And and they they were little tiny temples, and in the middle of these was carved the image of the god here in Ephesus, uh, Artemis, or Diana the Hunter, all right? Now, these things, again, were small enough to be worn as jewelry, or they were large enough to be used as an ornament. Um, if you've ever gone to a Chinese restaurant, chances are you may see a Buddha sitting there, right? So it's, it's kind of like that, a God that can be stuck in the house to show who, you know, who we all bow down to, uh, put in a business. And the thing is, Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship for the entire world. So when you talk about the shrine-making business and the guy who is a shriner, this is a huge business in Ephesus. These things are all over the city, but they're being exported all over the world, all right? So you're beginning to kind of get the feel of what's starting to happen here. So when we come to this guy, Demetrius, here's the thing. I called him a silversmith. That's not accurate. He is the silversmith. He is the master of the silversmith guild, 
And um, so he's kind of like the biggest deal when it comes to silversmithing in Ephesus. He's kind of like the union boss. If you, if you, if you were alive in the 80s and old enough to, you know, watch TV, he is basically E.F. Hutton, all right? When it comes to silversmithery, when Demetrius talks, everybody listens, all right? When Demetrius calls a meeting, everybody comes. That's how big a deal this guy is. But still, I want to give you a clearer picture of Demetrius, all right? Demetrius reminds me of somebody who is very, uh, v- very popular in modern culture today, all right? Believe it or not, he reminds me of a movie character who, who you know, he's all over the place right now, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm going to give you a hint who Demetrius reminds me of, and after you get it, you'll read this and go, that's exactly who Demetrius is, all right? So, do you guys feel up to this today? All right, I'm going to give you a hint, all right? So, so now, really, you need to be on your game for this, all right? So here we go. Here's the hint. No one fights like, douses lights like, in a wrestling match nobody bites like, he uses antlers in all of his decorating. And... He's especially good at expectorating. And rumor has it he's roughly the size of a barge. Yes, Demetrius is Gaston, y'all. I'm telling you, that's exactly who this guy reminds me of. And, And that's the feeling of verse 25 when Demetrius strolls into this meeting in, in, in verse 25, in front of all these guys from, like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, and essentially says, you know, my friends, we've worked so hard and we've done so well in this business, and yet all of us hardworking people, we've heard about this man, this beast named Paul, a deceiver, a disruptor a sheep in wolf's clothing leading people astray. All of Ephesus, practically the whole province of Asia, is coming under his spell. He's telling people that gods made by our humble, hardworking hands are no gods at all. Friends, our trade, our temple, our goddess will be ruined. That's the feel of verse 25. Okay, now let's, let's stop here and let's acknowledge the obvious, okay? There's something very obvious and we'd be remiss if we didn't point it out. Folks, believe it or not, Demetrius is exactly right. What he is saying, what he is claiming here, he's spot on. He's dead on the money because Paul is leading many people to Christ. He is leading many away from Artemis and to Christ. Folks, eventually, Jesus Christ is going to change their pagan culture. If the church keeps growing, silversmiths are going to be out of business. Demetrius has not said one thing that isn't absolutely the truth. But you see, that's not the real issue here, all right? The real issue is the last thing that Demetrius brings up in verse 27. It is that Artemis, okay, this god Artemis, a.k.a. Diana the hunter, is in the process of being dethroned by Jesus Christ. That's exactly what's happening. Every single day, Jesus is stripping Artemis of her glory. 
He, he is robbing Artemis of her power. Now, you might say, well, well, how exactly is Jesus doing this? It's simple. Every day, Jesus, through the Apostle Paul and through the first church, Jesus is saving people. Jesus is healing people. All over Ephesus, people are being delivered. They're being revived. They're being restored. And you see what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is exposing Artemis as an Isaiah 45.20. You know what an Isaiah 45.20 is? It's a God who cannot save. You know, if you look at Isaiah in the descriptions of idols, it's very funny. There's one passage, I should have looked it up, it just hits me right now, but, but, but it talks about what an idol really is. It says, look, an, an idol is, has a mouth, but it cannot speak. It has arms and, and legs, but it, but it cannot move. It cannot act in every way. That is what Jesus is doing in Ephesus, and Demetrius is telling the truth. And you see, since Paul is God's chosen instrument through whom all of this is, is happening, well, Demetrius pins all the blame on, on Paul. That's why he is like Gaston at the end. His plan of action is kill the beast. Let's get this Paul. Now, verses 28 through 31. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So basically what happens here is Demetrius succeeds in, in what he set out to do. He whips the silversmith into a frenzy. And the silversmiths, they, they simply go bananas, all right? There's no other way to explain it. The townspeople hear all of this. They rush over. They join in, and, and they start going bananas themselves. And then this mob grabs two of Paul's fellow disciples, two of his traveling companions, and they drag them into the theater, and the whole thing is absolute chaos. Nothing but, but confusion. Everybody's yelling something different. And, and I love uh, Luke's little sideline comment here. You know, some of the people who, who were there, they, they had no idea why they were there. You know, they've just jumped into this raging whitewater river of craziness. And, and then there's the other little bit of action here where there's some Jews in the crowd. And these Jews, well, they're not a part of the mob. You know, they don't worship Artemis, but they're also not a part of this Christian crowd. So they select a spokesman named Alexander, and they go, Alexander, I mean, you got to get up there. You got to get up there and, and help us and defend us. So Alexander tries to do that, to stand up and say, folks, we are not a part of the way. We Jews are doing something different. But what does the crowd do? Shouts him down. For how long? Two hours, okay? I mean, these guys must have started off, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and been like, great is Artemis. I mean, two hours of yelling like this. 
But like I said, it's just banana land right now. And I think a great question to ask in this moment is, okay, you got all this nutty stuff going on, you know, rioting and mobbing. Well, what about Paul, though? What about the Apostle Paul? And it's a great question because when you think about Paul, you know, just his nature, his demeanor, what do we know about this guy? Well, Paul is, by nature, a man of action, you know? Paul is bold for Jesus, isn't he? You know, he, he's like a lion for Jesus. Well, true to his nature, Paul decides in the midst of all of this, somebody needs to get in there. He's the spokesman of the church. He's going to step up on stage. He will defend Jesus. He will defend the ministry. He will defend, d- d- uh, defend his friends. He will defend the truth. And he gets ready to charge in, but all of a sudden, he can't do it. And the, the, the reason why he can't do it is quite interesting. It's because the disciples are physically holding Paul back. They are restraining him. In verse 30, they will not let him go forward. But that's not the only reason Paul doesn't go forward. In verse 31, we see that some, it just says, and it seems like a sideline comment, And some of the officials, uh, some of the the local officials of the province would not let Paul venture into the theater. That little comment in itself is fascinating because when it speaks of those guys, these are Roman officials. Roman officials will not let Paul go forward. Let that sit for a minute. Roman officials are the ones who sanctioned and oversaw the building of the temples. They are the ones who have okayed the shrine business. These guys are the ones that are getting rich off the shrine business. But look at what has happened in Ephesians in such a short time. These guys now, they consider Paul a good guy. They consider Paul a friend and they will not let him go forward. So in reality, what's happening right now is God is sending Paul a clear message. Paul, you're a man of action. Paul, you have built, you have blazed a trail for Jesus. Paul, you're amazing, but I do not need your help to deal with your enemies. Paul, in this situation, I don't even want your help in defending you from your enemies. So what God is saying by holding it back is, do not take the stage. Do not go and build your own little mob. Don't get up there and say anything. Don't defend. Paul, I want you to stand down. I got this. And I can just hear the Apostle Paul in these moments going, you got this, Lord? You got to be kidding me. How exactly do you got this? Because the only person who's going to get up here in the midst of this mob is going to be a Christian to set the record straight on what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we're all about. A Christian has got to stand up there and do this. And, And God, the only Christians we know right now are me, who's being held back by this human shield, which is the rest of the Christian body. How are you going to deal with this? Who's going to step up? And then out of nowhere, somebody steps up, and it's someone none of us would have ever seen coming. Verses 35 through 41, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the great temple Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. 
If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring in, it must be settled in legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting, and it should read, rioting without cause because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The storm stops, the chaos is calmed because of a Roman city clerk, all right? Now, some of your translations say mayor. That, that's, that's giving a little too much importance to this position, but it's kind of in between that. Basically, the assistant mayor of Ephesus stops all of this. And, and, and it's incredible. This is a guy, I mean, God, you've got him, 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 her, and you pick him. But in this moment, this Roman city clerk is thinking clearly. He has got the mind of the Lord. And when he opens his mouth and when he speaks, folks, he does so with the wisdom of Solomon. This guy says the only thing that will break up this frenzy. And we're all agreed. We're we're in a frenzied moment, right? Okay. Here's Here's what he says to him, okay? Number one, our role as guardians of the temple and the image of Artemis is not in danger. Okay, that's logic number one, logic piece number, number one. Number two, these Christians, they have not violated even one Roman law in what they've done. They haven't even talked bad about your goddess. So they're not, they're not guilty of civil law, a breach of civil law, or of Ephesian religious law. And then number three, if you have another beef, okay, if these guys have, have, have done something, then guess what? We've got a court system. We've got a legal system to handle all of these kinds of things. So that's pretty impressive, right? Makes a lot of sense. Wise, wonderful, true. But that's not what broke up the crowd. All right? That is not what took the wind out of their sails. It was the fourth thing he said. You are this close to being guilty of riding without a cause. That's what did it. Are you impressed? It's amazing, isn't it? No, here's what he did, okay? We talk about the fear of God, all right? Sometimes the fear of God doesn't work too well outside of the church. The Roman city clerk did not put the fear of God into that crowd. You know what he did? He put the fear of Rome into this crowd. Everyone in that crowd understood Rome. Basically, he's saying this. Look, if you guys keep it up, the emperor is going to hear about this. And if the emperor hears about this, what in the world are you going to say? What are you going to say to the Roman emperor who is all about law and order, not because he watched the show, law and order and authority and procedure? What will you say to him? Nothing. There is nothing you can say to Caesar. You can't explain this to him. There is no right reason to be here. And so... And so here's here's the point. Here's here's what's at stake. If Caesar hears about this and they're found rioting without cause, there are two things that are going to happen to Ephesus. Number one, they will lose their status as a free Roman city. Do you know what that means? It means Roman soldiers everywhere. 
everywhere. It means heightened Roman taxes all over the place. It means getting hassled on the streets. It means being not, not under the rule or the authority of, of Rome. It means being under the thumb and under the boot of Rome. That's one thing. That's one thing that they're in danger of. The second thing is even worse. It is that everybody who is identified in this mob rioting, they are either going to face gladiators or lions or the famous tradition in in, in Roman civilization back in that day, hanging on crosses on the side of the road going into town. That's what the Roman city clerk asked them. And I love the way this passage ends in verse 41. Then he dismissed the assembly. In other words, he finished that, took a look at the crowd, said, now go home, get out of here. And the people just slunk off. It's a phenomenal passage of Scripture. It is a great, great story. But the question we have is the question we often have when we're in the 21st century reading about the first century. Well, what is the takeaway, though? I mean, how actually do we take this story and apply it to our lives? Because the last time we all checked, you know, aren't a whole lot of silversmiths running around Virginia Beach, right? You know, I, I, I haven't heard any of you talking about Caesar unless it has the word salad coming after it, right? I mean, Artemis of the Ephesians and Diana the Hunter is nothing we ever have to worry about, these little shrines. So what's the takeaway? Well, actually, I think there is a phenomenal takeaway on a little thing that we, that we all have heard of in the church, especially the charismatic church, called spiritual warfare. I think this is an incredible passage teaching us fundamentals of spiritual warfare. Now, let me be careful and still probably get in trouble while I'm being careful. When I refer to spiritual warfare, I am not referring to some of the wild extra-biblical teaching about spiritual warfare that we sometimes run into in the church, uh, or some of the superstitions that we get into and we connect it to spiritual warfare. In other words, how spiritual warfare has kind of gone from Scripture and morphed into something else. Uh, you want an example? Sure, I'll give you one. The devil is behind every bush, causing every hassle and every inconvenience in my life. The reason I have a cold is because of the devil. You know, the reason my family is struggling is because of the devil. Now, it can it be the case? Sure, at times it's not always the case. That is giving the devil way too much power, way too much credit. I am talking about biblical spiritual warfare. I am referring to the great war, all right? The cosmic battle that exists between God and Satan, all right? Now, let me be very specific about this war. This is a war that is already won. It's already won, okay? But, yeah, and you should clap at that. I mean, man, what a great thing. We're in a battle that's already won. We are. This war is won, but on the other hand, uh, the war is not quite over yet. It's not quite over yet. And, and the truth is, it, it ends when Christ returns in victory. But for right now, in this century, all around us, this battle is real and this battle is raging. In the context of Scripture, though, the ones who are in harm's way, okay, the ones who are in danger in spiritual warfare, I shouldn't say even in danger, but the ones who are really uh, plagued or, or, or bothered by spiritual warfare, they are Christian soldiers, all right? 
Those are the ones that stand injury, hassle, everything else in this great war, the ones who are actually fighting it, just like a soldier in, 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 in our modern day times. And by the way, that can be any one of us in the room. Any one of us can experience spiritual warfare. Paul, however, here is a great example for us in the whole book of Acts of what it means to be involved in spiritual warfare, to be a soldier in the battle. Why? Because Paul is fully engaged in the Great Commission, all right? Paul, every day of his life, is out there seeking to take prisoners of war back from Satan. Therefore, Paul is somebody who experiences a whole lot of spiritual warfare. I'll give you some other names in Scripture. Jesus, Peter, the disciples, the first church, they were no stranger to spiritual warfare. And I said people in the room. That is also those of us in this room who are engaged in the Great Commission in modern day times. You know, we're praying, we're interceding for someone to come from darkness into light, to be released. We're really praying for the lost. We're really proclaiming Jesus Christ in the workplace to our neighbors, to to family out there. We're blessing people in Jesus' name, and we've really sought to serve them. Folks, if that's you, man, spiritual warfare is something that that you will soon know about if you don't already know about it. But, But when people say, hey, you know what? I'm getting hit every day, and I'm not engaged in the Great Commission, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You don't see that in Scripture. Think about it. Think about it for a second. Why would Satan attack somebody who's not engaged in the mission for God? Why would he? I mean, seriously, why mess with a marginal Christian, someone who's on the sidelines? Why mess with them and risk waking them up to spiritual reality? Risk waking them up to, man, what, what, what the, the kingdom of God coming and all that it takes? Why do that? But I'll tell you this, Satan does go after those who are engaged in this great commission. And that's where Acts 19 is an incredible comfort, okay? Because what we see here today is what we experience. Satan goes after those who are engaged. Satan strikes those, he will strike at those who who are seeking to save the lost. And y'all, when Satan strikes, it's like the first Karate Kid movie, you know? It's like the Cobra Kai strike first, strike hard, no mercy, sir. That's how he goes after us. But stop and look at Paul for just a minute. When Paul is attacked in Acts 19, what does he do? I mean, seriously, describe Paul's action in Acts 19, 23 through 41. What would we say Paul did? Nothing. Paul does nothing in this passage. In fact, his name is only mentioned four times. You know what Paul is here? Now, the story is about Paul, okay? They're all after Paul. You know, the pitchforks are being pointed in Paul's direction. All that is true, but Paul is an extra. He's he's on the sideline watching the battle and nothing more. But look at God. What is God doing? God is doing everything. God is handling everything. God is directing everything. You know, God is having those men shield Paul. God is pouring his wisdom into the city clerk. God is the one who's just breaking up the mob. So folks, the point is this. When we follow Jesus Christ on this great commission, when we get engaged, you know what you have to fear? Nothing. 
Nothing in this life, nothing on this planet. And listen, sometimes, sometimes God will direct you in, in, in a spiritual battle. God will direct you to do something. You know, sometimes God will say, right now, pray. Right now, you step up and defend. Sometimes the Lord will direct you, and you will be very active in spiritual warfare. But there are some times when God will say, you know what? Who does my word say is your defender? It's me. I will defend you. I want you to sit back. I want you to watch how I protect the lives of my faithful one. I want you to watch how serious I am about my great commission. Folks, he'll defend us. And that is really, really good news. So if we learn nothing else from Acts 19, it's, wow, look how big God is all over again. All right. Having said that, we're going to end a little differently today. Um, I want the church, I want to invite you to engage in a little bit of spiritual warfare with me, and we're going to do it right now. We are going to pray for one of our missionaries, uh, a man named Andrew Brunson, who has served God in Turkey for decades. Now, let me tell you Andrew's story if you don't know it. Um, He has dedicated his life to proclaiming Christ to Muslims in Turkey. And back in October, okay, what what, what month is it? I was going to say May. It's the end of April. Okay, how many months is that? I didn't count. Six, six, seven, okay, seven months. He has been in a Turkish prison for seven months on baseless charges. Baseless, absolutely made up. And he is awaiting trial. We don't have a date, but the trial is coming. The EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we we have petitioned Turkey. Um, We've sent folks over to Turkey. The U.S. State Department has been there. Nothing, nothing has, has changed anything. But we just looked at a passage of Scripture that was pretty darn impossible, right? I mean, this, this, this thing was impossible. Paul, Paul should have been, he should have been barbecue in this thing. He wasn't, right? Our God does impossible extremely well. And so what I want to ask you to do today is I would like to ask you to pray with me. We are going to agree as a church, all right? We are going to agree for this man's release. Now, if, if the Lord wants to martyr him to, to, to bring resurrection life out of death, that is up to the Lord, okay? Our job is to believe. Our job is to ask. Our job is to intercede for this man. So would you, would you guys be willing to do that today? All right, I want us to stand up in faith today. And I'm gonna gonna let it go here. We are gonna pray. You can grab a hand if you want to. It doesn't matter, okay? Father, right now, we as the church of Jesus Christ, God, we together, we know there is no distance in the spirit. Lord, we know that that spiritually everything changes when it comes to, to the difference between the spiritual and the natural. Right now, even though we are in Virginia Beach, we lift Jesus Christ over that prison right now. We lift Jesus Christ over the nation of Turkey. God, we are asking you in this moment, right this second, Lord, would you move the hearts of these Turkish officials in Jesus' name? God, I pray that they would have blinders on their eyes, that you would stop up their ears to the lies of the enemy, that, God, you would change the course of their thinking. Holy Spirit, would you convict the hearts? I pray that you would wring the hearts of these Turkish officials in Jesus' name. God, we're asking you as a church in the name of Jesus Christ to set this captive free. God, we are asking you to release Andrew Brunson in the name of Jesus. And Father, we thank you that your witness, your work, your word in Turkey, it is not being shut down in Jesus' name. 
So Father, we agree, and we are going to stand in this place. And God, I thank you right now for assignments that you are giving people all over this room. There is going to be a burden that is going to land on some of your hearts this week to pray for Andrew. And you're going to know how to pray for him. Lord God, we are going to be careful to wait and to pray. And, and Lord we, God, we will celebrate. Father, we will go ahead and have a jubilee celebration when we hear the good news. And we just thank you in advance before we even see it. We thank you in advance for setting this man free in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Hey, I love you. Y'all are beautiful. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for your worship today. God bless you. Love you.